everyone. Welcome back to Shipping Shakespeare, or as we like to call it, Shakespeare for Perverts. I'm Liz. And I'm Julia. And today we will be discussing The Merchant of Venice. Gird your loins. It's going to be okay. Eventually it will. We're going to tear it to pieces and all will be well. We're going to wreck this play. If you guys like this play, you might want to skip this podcast. Also, I have questions. Alternatively, if you like this play, you might want to stick around and listen to the reasons we find it problematic. So problematic. Julia's going to take us through a summary, and then I'll run through some key ideas, and then we'll get right to business. First and foremost, I can't say it enough. Fuck this play. (laughs) I don't like this play. I'm never going to like this play. Fuck it. And everyone in it, and not in our usual fun way. This is a problem play, which is a phrase you might have heard before. In fact, this is the problem play from my perspective, because this play is just a fucking problem. Merchant tells the story of a bunch of racist asshole Venetians who also have romantic troubles or something like that. Bassanio is a noble dude without a lot of cash who wants to court Portia, the lady of Belmont, which is not in Venice. It's like a mystical island type place. His very good, and I mean very good friend, Antonio, because it's always an Antonio, offers to lend him some money, except all of his worldly goods are tied up at the moment in a bunch of ships that will inevitably crash later in the play. He is actually the titular merchant, even though I feel like everyone kind of forgets that. So Antonio borrows the money from a Jewish man, Shylock, who is a usurer or money lender. To put it lightly, they hate each other, mostly because Antonio is a raging anti-Semite, like everyone else in this goddamn play. And when he offers a literal pound of flesh as surety, Shylock is all for it. Shylock has a daughter, Jessica, who elopes with one of Bassanio's friends, Lorenzo, and takes a bunch of money and jewels with her. Meanwhile, at Belmont, Portia is fielding offers for her hand and chilling with her lady, Nerissa, except it's not the usual courting. Her dad set up this holy grail kind of test for anyone who wants to marry her before he died. Most of the dudes hanging around don't risk the test, because you can't marry if you fail. Like, you can't marry anyone. But a couple, the princes of Morocco, who's black, so we get more racism, and Aragon do. They choose wrongly, but of course Bassanio, who shows up with his asshole friend Gratiano, figures it out in a minute. Luckily, Portia's super into him, and they marry. Gratiano marries Nerissa, because of course. But then they get word that Antonio's been arrested and can't pay back Shylock, who's demanding his pound of flesh, which is where that phrase comes from. As you do if you're a Shakespearean heroine and are the smartest person in the room, but, you know, you're still a lady. Portia, with the help of Nerissa, dresses up as a legal scholar and goes to Venice to defend Antonio. She finds a loophole in his agreement, shows Shylock no mercy whatsoever in what may be the most awkward scene in all of Shakespeare, and everyone goes back to Belmont, happy for sexy times. Except Shylock, of course, because racism, and Antonio, who's left out of all the coupley merriment because he's an Antonio and that's what happens to them. I've been dying laughing the entire time you were doing that summary. Thanks. I am so angry if you can't tell. Complete mystery. I hit it, I know. Really well. (laughs) As far as the key ideas of the play go, again, gird your loins. A major theme of this play is the issue raised at Antonio's trial of justice versus mercy. While Portia's exquisite plea for mercy is one of the two most famous speeches in the play, there is ultimately no mercy shown to anyone except arguably the most worthless people in the cast, namely Bassanio and Graziano. Justice prevails instead in its cruelest form, whether it's through Shylock's humiliation and forced conversion, or through the plight of Jessica, who's trapped in a marriage foreshadowed to be unhappy among people who despise her origins. It's worth noting that in the beginning of the play, no one chooses to show mercy to Shylock or even recognizes the difficulty of his circumstances. And the play's actual most famous speech, which tops even Portia's supremely eloquent appeal, is Shylock's desperate cry for vengeance, or as he calls it, justice. More dramatic and more destructive, justice is the winner here, sweeping aside the better instinct toward mercy. A modern audience has to reckon, as Shakespeare's would not have, with the play's deeply rooted and, as Julia has mentioned, appalling anti-Semitism. Hatred of Jews 
is a fact of life too obvious to be questioned to these characters, and it does real damage to our ability to sympathize with them or even cheer for them in their successes. As he often does, Shakespeare puts a new spin on tired cliches. His twist here is to make the Jewish moneylender not a stock villain, as he was in, say, Marlowe's Jew of Malta, but a real person with sympathetic qualities and understandable motivation. But to envision a Jew as a human first and a villain second is incomparably less groundbreaking today than it was 400 years ago, leaving modern audiences, at least those who aren't actual Nazis, because we still have those in the 21st century, seriously uncomfortable with the devastating happy ending. It's possible that Shakespeare's depiction of Shylock was influenced by the high-profile execution of Elizabeth I's personal doctor, Rodrigo Lopez, a Portuguese converso from a Jewish background who met a traitor's death after being convicted of trying to poison her. Whether he actually did it is highly doubtful, as he continued to profess his innocence on the scaffold. The Merchant of Venice, with its preoccupations with justice, mercy, and anti-Semitism, was written no more than four years after Lopez's death. As is usual in Shakespeare, friendships carry more weight than romantic attachments. The most obvious is, of course, Bassanio's sprint back to Venice, abandoning his brand new bride-to-be at Antonio's side in his putative last moments, and the charade with his wedding ring, which he surrenders to the disguised Portia at Antonio's urging. A strain of this also carries through with the women, when Portia trusts Nerissa with far more than her husband. Bros before hoes is the watchword for this play. What effect this may have on Portia and Bassanio's marriage is up to each individual reader or production to answer for themselves. Unmistakably, though, the women wear the pants here. Most obviously, Portia's rescue of Antonio gives her all the narrative power that everyone but Shylock has abdicated. In interpersonal terms, Bassanio sees Portia as a means to an end at first, but is terrified when he has to face her and say he lost her ring. Even Graziano verbally flails when confronted with Nerissa's anger. Melancholy Antonio can put up very little fight against Portia's power. Family also means a tremendous amount to these characters. Portia endures her father's fairy tale casket set up despite her fear of having to marry against her will. Even as a wealthy orphan, her choices are not hers to make. She has to fit her wish to marry Bassanio to her dead father's orders. More importantly, Shylock is broken utterly by the loss of what family remains to him when Jessica elopes. Where Portia's fear is taken seriously by Nerissa, everyone mocks Shylock's grief. He's certainly not parent of the year. Jessica resents both him and the strictures he places on her enough to cut all ties with her heritage, but the depth of his love for her is painfully visible when she's gone. Class also factors into these relationships. Bassanio and Portia are both upper class, but she clearly occupies a different world than him. Not only does she have money, where he doesn't, but he also blurs the lines between himself and his middle class companions. Portia's most significant relationship is indeed with Nerissa, her maid, but they both remain aware of the class differences between them, although it proves no impediment to their closeness. Graziano, for instance, takes far more liberties with Bassanio than Nerissa ever does with Portia, but their friendship isn't portrayed nearly as closely. Antonio belongs to a lower class than Bassanio, and that relationship is obviously deep and meaningful for them both, but as with Nerissa, Antonio knows it can't last, while Bassanio seems at times to willfully deny it. And of course, all the Christian characters occupy both in their heads and their reality a higher status than Shylock and Jessica. Order, as Shakespeare would have seen it, is restored at the end of the play, a concept he expresses metaphorically with music. First, Portia has a hinting song played during Bassanio's choice of the caskets, helping him choose the bride that will restore him to his socially rightful place, and at the end, Lorenzo and Jessica's evening conversation about the music of the sphere both reinforces the parallel between music and order, and foreshadows their future unhappiness in Jessica's inability to enjoy the music. Finally, and bizarrely in this particular play, the casket choice that Portia's suitors face is both an obvious reminder to value truth over show, and a bizarrely ignored moral by everyone who witnesses it in their ultimate treatment of Shylock. The audience knows from the start that the gold and silver caskets are gotchas, and the ugly lead casket is the right one to pick. Portia's song, played during Bassanio's choice, even reminds him that fancy is bred in the eyes. But they promise 
promptly ignore that reminder when faced with the grief below Shylock's implacable rage. No attempt is made to sympathize or understand. In that sense, the entire Christian cast chooses the shiny casket of justice rather than the humbler casket of mercy. Oh, nicely put. Thanks. I was really proud of myself when I came up with that one. (laughs) Also, full disclosure, guys, I'm Jewish. Yeah. Like, it shouldn't really matter when we're talking about the humanity of these characters, but in this play, it kind of hella does. It informs your experience of reading the play for sure. Like, I think any reasonable person should find this objectionable, but on the off chance you don't know any Jewish people, you do now. (laughs) Baruch I'm going to stop there because I don't actually want to be sacrilegious. I mean, you do you. Yeah, who are we kidding? I totally want to be sacrilegious. But let's continue. (laughs) Suffice it to say, we have extremely complicated... Actually, I don't know if they're complicated. We have feelings about this play that are not positive. Loud and angry feelings. We're going to do our usual. Like, we're going to go into our canon ships now, but it's not going to be as fluffy and fun as it usually is. Not that canon ships are really ever that fun from my perspective. (laughs) Well, that's because you usually don't ship the canon pairing. Really? think people have noticed that? It just came clear to me, like, just now at this very moment. Yeah, you don't know me at all. So basically, every single canon ship in this play is hella problematic. Even if you remove the fact that the characters themselves are awful people because of the racism and the anti-Semitism, there are still issues. Even if these were characters in Twelfth Night, I would still have significant concerns. The racism and the anti-Semitism are fun side dishes to the cocktail of fucked up relationships dynamics that are presented here. The prejudice sauce on the shit Sunday. <laughs> Accurate. But let's go for our big one to start, yeah? Let's do it. Obviously, the marquee couple of this play is Portia and Bassanio. Or, alternatively, a lady with money and a dude who's using her for it. Yeah! They are also pretty hot for each other, but even Sebastian and Olivia got a little more development of their relationship than Bassanio and Portia do. It happens about as quickly, but we don't even see it happen. Bassanio shows up at Belmont and then like the next scene we get with the two of them, Portia's already like, I don't want you to go and I don't want you to fail the test. And you're like, what possibly could have happened in the last five minutes? We're presented with some backstory as spoken by Bassanio and by Portia and Nerissa separately that independently they've each thought the other one was super fucking hot. Right. But that's not really enough to make us believe that hard in their love. Especially for a central couple in ostensibly, at least, we're calling this a romantic comedy. Like, we can object to that for all of the reasons that we've said, but it's presented as a comedy. It's about people getting together and getting married, which, you know, are how Shakespearean comedies function, right? Marriage is the solution at the end of the play. And I can't think of any that are this underdeveloped, the central pairing of the play, not a side couple. It's particularly pointed because the characters individually get plenty of development. Like, we know exactly who Portia is, we know exactly who Bassanio is, but we don't really get much sense of them together. We get a ton of flowery speeches at their betrothal slash wedding, but there's just not a lot going on there beyond you're attractive and or rich, and I'm so happy to be with someone who is attractive and or rich. Oh, and you solved the riddle, which again was super fucking easy. <laughs> yeah, like have you ever read a fairy tale in your life? Ever. No, they have not. Not to rag on Morocco and Aragon. I mean, obviously their ignorance 
is like a plot point and we will talk about them later because ouch yeah i don't really even have that much to say about this pairing except that it's incredibly underdeveloped they come through for each other i guess in the well she comes through for him actually yeah no he conspicuously does not come through for her he's just like oh antonio if only you could survive i'd let my brand new wife die she's like hey standing right here you don't know that but literally standing right here asshole fuck you We can also talk about the fact that Portia is the most manipulative character in this play. She's got some Rosalind qualities to her. But without Rosalind's charm. Yeah, it's kind of like if Rosalind and Olivia had a baby. That baby, if it were extremely racist, would be Portia. Oh my god, will you marry me? But yeah, Rosalind's manipulations are in part excusable because of her circumstances which have driven her to deceit, but also in part because she is so fucking smart and charming. Right. Portia's very smart. I don't find her charming. She's kind of mean, honestly. I'm stealing a line from Ned here, but Portia is Shakespearean white feminism. Oh, A+. She's legit not interested in anyone else's struggle but her own. Well, she's an extremely isolated character in a way that even, you know... We've seen women in bizarre circumstances in all of our plays that we've talked about, but she does not have experience with the outside world, and it definitely shows. And just her, like, heaps and heaps of privilege. The fact that when they're explaining Antonio's situation to her, and she's like, oh, I'll pay off the finance, but I'll pay off twice, three times, I don't even care. That sum of money is nothing to me. The class disparity really is between Portia and, like, every other fucking person in the play. I think I read somewhere that she's, like, on some kind of fictional Fortune 500 list. She might be the wealthiest bitch in all Shakespeare. I'm not sure. Cleopatra might be able to give her a run for that, but literally no one else. She's got the goods and doesn't question it. Everyone else in the play is trying to get by, and you can see that with the geographical distance between Belmont and Venice. Like, these are really separate worlds. Every, like, normal concern that you would have about being a person happens in Venice, and then in Belmont it's just, like, music and, like, Arthurian legend-inspired tests and nothing. (laughs) It's bullshit. It's not the real world. No. And it's not the world of people with real problems. And I think that even makes her brilliance a little less impressive than, say, Rosalind's. Because Rosalind is so very much of her world. Right. She's clearly been, you know, sharpened by her experiences, and she uses that mostly for her own good, but to an extent for the good of other people. But yeah, with Portia, it's just like, it doesn't even feel quite earned, I guess. Portia's not doing it for anyone else. She's doing it so that she and her new boy toy can go back and make whoopee without guilt. Before Bassanio shows up, all of her wit is just employed to make fun of the people showing up trying to marry her. Yeah. She is a Shakespearean mean girl. I'm gonna go ahead and say that. No argument here. And then Bassanio is... He's just such a user. Yeah. Yeah. He uses Portia. He uses Antonio. We get some lines at the beginning about how he's like a really generous friend and how that's why he doesn't have any money, but like, my dude. (laughs) That doesn't make you a stellar human being. (laughs) You like spend all your cash on your friends and then borrow more money from your friends. Yeah. Also, your friends are garbage and you should get better friends if you're such a good person. (laughs) That seems like a good segue, actually. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, the most garbage person in this entire play. Now, don't forget, you have to save some of this for when we sink these ships, even though it sounds a lot like we're sinking them now. So next episode might be like 10 minutes long. Episode B, see above. We're still so angry. But yes, Graziano Nerissa gets shockingly even less development than Portia Bassanio. This is 
like a clear pair the spare setup. It really is just because they're both involved with these other people who are now together. Like that's the only reason they get put together in the first place. There's no personal attachment there that makes any sense whatsoever. Graziano even has a line about it. Like, of course he does. <laughs> yeah, naturally. God, he never shuts up. You saw the mistress, I beheld the maid. You loved, I loved. For intermission no more pertains to me, my lord, than you. <laughs> oh, God. It's basically Shakespeare being like, yeah, I paired the spares. What you gonna do about it? Come at me. No, but really stop me from writing this play. <laughs> Please, someone travel back in time. Just make this not happen. And then, like, for Nerissa's part, she's really clear about the fact that she's not going to marry Gratiano if Portia and Bassanio doesn't work out. <laughs> Clearly, she's invested. Or maybe this is just hella convenient, like some other pair of the spare pairings I can think of. Oh, all of them, maybe? Blah. Also, we'll get into this more later, but Nerissa deserves better. She does. She, like everyone else in the play, sucks. But she sucks less than most of them. She's less overtly racist. Yeah, I mean, she probably just has less opportunity. And is more genuinely helpful than most of these other trash fires. She genuinely cares for Portia. We'll talk about how much the reverse is true. But there aren't that many relationships like that in the play. Nerissa genuinely cares about Portia without any like other strings attached. You can kind of say that Antonio cares about Bassanio without any other things, but we're going to talk about why that's probably not true. I'd go for it. The dude is willing to die for him. Yeah, but you've raised some points about like the age difference and like... No, I mean, it's still problematic as hell, but the depth of feeling is legit on Antonio's part. Okay, fair. There's some robots where I think that that's probably true, but yeah, those are the two most genuine relationships in the play, and they're not between people who are, you know, supposed to spend the rest of their lives together romantically. Speaking of people who are supposed to spend the rest of their lives together romantically... Oh, gosh. Shylock's daughter, Jessica, elopes with the slightly less trash friend of Bassanio, Lorenzo. Yeah, that's a blue ribbon designation. You are not as awful a person as Graziano. Congratulations! C+. C minus, probably. (laughs) But yeah, there's all kinds of subtle and not so subtle signals in this play that this too is not a pairing that's going to end well. Most obviously in the ending scene where they're talking about music. That whole exchange is actually really uncomfortable. What kicks it off is the two of them comparing themselves and the night they're currently in to other famous lovers and famous nights. And you might have noticed that literally all of those lovers they compare themselves to have tragic endings. Yeah. Troilus and Cressida, Pyramus and Thisbe, Dido and Aeneas, Jason and Medea. Okay, so the other one's got an eyebrow raise, but you know, they're tragically romantic, but Jason and Medea is not romantic at all. And she's the one who invokes that one. Yeah, maybe a slight hint at her current feelings about the situation. Just a little bit. Really subtle. Guys, if you're in love, you should be doing better than this. Like, at least reach for a Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) Something. Anything. But then, like, it's even clear in this scene when he comes to take her away that this is a terrible idea. Yes. She wants to get away from home more than she wants to be Lorenzo's wife. Like, she's got a bit of Little Mermaid syndrome going on here. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And he is not an Eric by any stretch. I mean, Eric is boring, but at least he's good. If you're gonna, like, crawl out a window for someone, make sure it's the right guy. That's all I'm saying. Maybe someone who won't let his friends call you an infidel. He probably does, too, let's be honest. It's so sad. 
sad and gross. Yeah, I get where she's coming from and why she wants to get out so bad because, like you said, Shylock is definitely not father of the year. And, you know, she's in Venice. There's all this revelry going on outside her window. Of course she wants to be part of it. All of Bassanio's friends are like the people who get to enjoy it. So it makes sense. But they don't really know each other. I mean, that's the key to the issue with all of these pairings is that we're talking about people who are basically strangers. Who are deciding to make these enormous, momentous, lifelong decisions without knowing their partners. Blah. There's no way any of this could ever go wrong. No, no. These snap judgments always work out for people. Perfect. Aces. Including in all of Shakespeare. They're all so doomed. (laughs) So doomed. But probably they're not going to die by stabbing and poison, unlike some other kids we could mention. Some other Italian kids. We'll just let the plague take care of this mess. Little late for that but okay. I'm sure there's going to be another plague. (laughs) There's always another plague. (laughs) The plague is just like biding its time until it can get all of these chuckleheads in one fell swoop. Well, you know, the upper classes never suffer as much as they should. (sighs) Before we get super dark, there's one last canon pairing in this play. Go for it. Which is Shylock and Leah, Jessica's dead mother. Oh, my favorite. The best one, sadly. This is my actual favorite canon ship, and she's dead. That alone should tell you something about where this play stands on functional relationships. The very bottom. The reason this is my favorite canon ship rests on one line. When Shylock's friend Tubal comes to tell him about Antonio's ship's foundering and Jessica's newly converted misdeeds. What hits Shylock hardest, ultimately, is when Tubal tells him that he heard of Jessica trading a turquoise ring for a monkey, and Shylock breaks down and says, I had it of Leah when I was a bachelor. Mm-hmm. That's the straw that breaks the camel's back for him, that Jessica had her mother's ring that Leah gave to Shylock when they were courting each other, and could have given it away for a fucking monkey. Yep. Whether or not she actually does it, which some productions throw into doubt, which I kind of love, that just breaks me. Yeah, his genuine feeling there. And it goes back to your point about Shakespeare humanizing him. I mean, he's still the villain, and that's still a huge problem, but that he's someone who has loved and lost in a way that no one else in this play has. Yeah, no, loss is real for Shylock. Yeah, he loses more than anyone and already has more experience with it, because this is a play mostly full of young people, and they don't know all the hardships of the world yet, but Shylock really does. Which again, if we were actually paying attention to Mercy, would indicate that you maybe shouldn't give him even more to suffer through. One would think. But then again, one would not be living in this fucking play. And if you are, I'm so sorry, because it's the worst. You mentioned possibly the most racist bit. Now I've repressed it. So Shylock has a clown? Is he a clown? He's a clown. He starts off the play in service to Shylock and then takes service with Bassanio because he likes the look of the new liveries that Bassanio's ordering with Shylock's money. Not shallow at all. Anyway, so there's Lancelot the place clown character. Less funny than many other clowns we've loved, but again, merchant, so fuck it. There's a suggestion later in the play that Lancelot has impregnated a serving woman who is black, and in a play that's already real fucking racist, they made it worse. I didn't think that was possible, but they did it. I mean, there are lots of anti-Semitic jokes in the play, but in this particular section there are a bunch of jokes with the play on the word more, which is Shakespearean for black person. And it's all a fucking joke. There's no humanity to this woman who we don't even get to see. In some productions, I have seen them include her so that it makes sense, but that's pretty much all you get.
yet. It's gross. It's dehumanizing and gross. But it's technically a canon ship. The worst canon ship. <laughs> this play is gross. It's icky. And I'm glad, actually, that we're getting it out of the way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sudden spontaneous vomiting is sometimes my default reaction to Merchant of Venice. Anyway, given all of this grossness, I do actually have some personal OTPs. I have like one and a half. Maybe two if we round up. Let's start with the most obvious, Bassanio Antonio, or as I call it, Bassonio. Which is adorable. And few things are here. You don't just casually pledge a pound of your flesh for a casual friend. Nope. These two are doing it on the reg. And I feel like everyone knows it too, because there's some lines, including one delivered by my personal fave, Solanio, who I will get to in a second. <laughs> oh, I think Antonio only loves the world for Bassanio. Yeah. And then there's what they themselves say in the trial. Oh my god, yeah. And the thing to remember, which I forget until I see it in performance, is that these characters think these are the last moments they will ever have together. Like, there is no more time for cuteness and dissembling. Like, now, if ever, is the time to confess your heart. Yes. This is their goodbye scene. And what does Bassanio say? I am married to a wife which is as dear to me as life itself, but life itself, my wife, and all the world are not with me esteemed above thy life. I would lose all. I sacrifice them all here to this devil to deliver you. Yep. When Antonio is saying his goodbye, he says, Commend me to your honorable wife. Tell her the process of Antonio's end. Say how I loved you. Speak me fair in death. And when the tale is told, bid her be judge whether Bassanio had not once a love. He's basically saying, even your wife is going to acknowledge that no one will ever love you like I do. Yep. It's not subtle. This is as blatant as it can be. And only made better by the fact that his name is Antonio. Yes, because if we haven't mentioned it, 800 times before. Just kidding. I know we have. If you're Antonio and you're in a Shakespeare play, you're the gay one. Every time. Now, as I noted, there are better Antonios. Oh, God. I just want us to have gay pirates swoop in and kill all these chuckleheads and save us. Yeah, just selfless gay pirates who are there for their friends. They're very, very good friends. Yes, they're good friends, Sebastian. Who they've totally, totally seen naked. A lot. Often. Every day and night. But we're talking about this Antonio, who you know, it's still involved with ships. Make all the jokes. The lesser Antonio. Yes. But yeah, it doesn't even seem up for debate to me that this is the primary ship of this play. This is where the linguistic effort goes in developing a romantic relationship. Oh yeah, this is where the poetry is. This is where the declarations are. I mean, the stuff that happens at Belmont, in contrast to this, doesn't even feel real. No, that's all courtly bullshit. Dreamlike and fairy tale and Arthurian and all that other shit. This is... I will literally die for you right here. You will never forget that I died for you. And Antonio is self-sacrificing as shit and doesn't even demand that Bassanio come see him before he dies. He says, if your love do not persuade you, <laughs> let not my letter. <laughs> You're like, whoa, my dude. <laughs> yeah. You're about to get carved up in court. I mean, we'll talk about this later because I have thoughts on this because like Antonio is almost as good a manipulator as Portia. Right. But he is also so ready. Oh yeah. At this point, honestly, I think he wants to die for Bassanio because that's the only way he knows Bassanio will never forget him. Right. Well, it's worth noting too how oh, what was me and tragic he is at the beginning of the play before anything happens. I mean, he and Ursino could definitely hang out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and just be 
super dramatic queens together because they are. Oh my god. Oh, they'd enable each other's absolute worst characteristics. It would be the worst friendship ever, but I would watch the shit out of that play. <laughs> and then Solanio asks him, oh, you're in love. And he says, fie, fie. Like, I'm not. But obviously he is. The lady's protesting way too much. The 2004 filmed version with Jeremy Irons and Joseph Fiennes as Antonio and Bassanio fucking went for it. For which I will love it forever. Hard agree. As much as I hate this play, that is a good version. I just so appreciate when a production doesn't dance around the fact that this is obviously the premier romantic attachment in this play. I don't even know if you can call this subtext, but I feel that with all of the subtext at this point, if you're making contemporary era Shakespeare, just fucking go for it. What risk is there? The love dare speak its name now. High five. You made a compelling argument many months ago when we were planning to do all of this <laughs> that Bassanio was on top, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. Mm -hmm. I needed to acknowledge that that's been a sticky note on my iMac for half of a year. Yes! And now I don't want to take it down. Nope, it's got to stay to remind you of some core truths. It is the truest thing in this play. <laughs> for all that Antonio manipulates the crap out of Bassanio's emotions, Bassanio is very clearly the one in charge of this relationship, both because Antonio knows that because of their class differences it can't last, and therefore is reluctant to get too attached, even though he already is. Hence the moping. And also because, as previously mentioned, Bassanio is a user. He's well aware of Antonio's feelings for him and has no qualms at all about taking advantage of his time, his love, and or his money. He is the one in charge, whether they like it or not. I don't see the lie here. Usually we discuss, but let's be real. That's just true. Bassanio has all the power in this relationship. The minute he says it's over, it is. And I think that's true at the end of the play. Yes. Which we'll also get into next time. But he gets to set the terms of this relationship. Relationship. Antonio is the one asking him to come see him, and it's not just because he's in jail. It's worth, I think, taking a quick look at that opening scene between the two of them. Antonio literally opens the play by saying, I don't know why I'm so mopey and sad and emo all the time. And everyone else is like, I think we all know why. It's because you're banging that hot dude who won't commit. <laughs> it's risky in this heteronormative society. <laughs> then Bassanio arrives, and he's just like, Antonio, I love you so much. Would you do anything for me? Would you die for me? Would you kill for me? Would you lend me all the money? you have so I can go marry a lady? <laughs> and Antonio's like, um, yes. Sure, honey. Because I don't have another answer prepared and I have to do what you say. And then literally puts his body on the line. The pound of flesh nearest his heart. Yeah, which, you know, Shylock gets to claim, but it's clearly for Bassanio. <laughs> yeah, it is the slash bearing of the play. It's practically canon. I will fight anyone who says it's not canon. <laughs> I mean, I know we're throwing it up as an OTP and it's not official or anything, but this is just the most intense relationship we have. Except for arguably the hate sex one, which we'll get into later. Yes, for next time. My other OTP for this play is Porissa. <laughs> this just doesn't even sound good. <laughs> the smart ladies almost always deserve each other, but particularly in this play where all of the men are garbage fires, they really do deserve each other. They do, and it's my favorite sort of femme slash pairing, and arguably the most common one, which is built on banter. Like Rosalind and Celia. Exactly like that, except Rosalind and Celia are more awesome and less racist. No arguments here. I didn't think there would be. Again, just like, fuck all these people. But sure, if we are in 
envisioning scenarios in which they would be truly happy, then for sure Portia and Nerissa. I mean, they're already happy together when the play starts. These are the two who trust each other with secrets. And they plot together real well. <laughs> Can we point that out? Like, that all this stuff with the rings, they make that happen, barely conferring about it. In fact, I'm not even sure that they do. Portia starts the thing with the ring with Bassanio, and then Nerissa's just like, tee, I'm gonna see if I can get my husband to do the same thing yours did. Yeah, it's this weird competition. And it's not done as a gloating thing. It's not my husband is gonna hold out more than yours. It's just like, both our husbands are dumb as shit. And we're fucking brilliant, so this is gonna be hilarious together. Just wait to see what we come up with to fuck them over. Their lives are going to be hell. Well, they're just gonna have to get used to the fact that they will not call the shots in their lives anymore. Yep. That time is done, assholes. They pwn them so thoroughly at the end of the play, like, it's not even funny. And even before that, right, they're the ones who come up with the solution to the problem together. The dudes are worth fuck all in this play. Porsche's the one that's like, yeah, I can totally figure this out enough and just keep talking until I find the right answer to the situation. And Nurse is like, yeah, I'm there for you. The guys don't do anything. The women solve everything, as usual. Dare I say it, the guys stand around talking about their feelings while the women get shit done. <laughs> no, we're not going to do any, like, toxic masculinity shaming, but... We're totally going to do toxic masculinity shaming because that shit needs to die. It does. Fuck all the dudes in this play. <laughs> the women get their shit together and they support one another and they keep someone from being murdered. They turn around and do awful shit right back, but they do keep someone from being murdered. Again, they're all terrible people. I can't say that enough. They all fucking suck. But if we're going to make arguments for who is the least unappealing, it's Portia Nurza for sure. Yes. Jessica aside, she's another conversation, which we will keep having. What makes Portia and Nerissa also appealing is that it doesn't have the same manipulative quality that Bassonio does. Now, I would argue it's still an unequal relationship. We'll probably talk about that in Problematic Fapes next time. But yeah, they're maybe not quite equally matched in terms of intelligence the way that Rosalind and Celia are, but it's pretty close. This is as good as we can get from this play, basically. It doesn't compare to any of our favorite pairings from past episodes, okay? Even in plays that we're ambivalent about. Because again, it's just bad. I try harder for Sebastian and Olivia than I try for any couple in this play. At least they're cute, and at least you know that he doesn't suck. Yeah. And she deserves to be happy, so if he makes her happy, it's fine. I don't think any of these people deserve to be happy. Yeah, they kind of all deserve the hell that will be their lives with everyone else. Yeah, so it's good that their relationships are dysfunctional. So that they don't fuck over anyone else's lives with their bullshit. Preach. There's one more sort of OTP. Mostly I just pulled this out of the air, but I think it's a little more developed than a robot that's what I'm going to tell myself. I ship Antonio with Solanio. Make the case. All right, so Solanio is one of the numerous dudes with whom Bassanio and company hang out. They're a little bit indistinguishable, but Solanio is always the one singing Antonio's praises. He's the one who asks him if he's in love at the beginning of the play, and you can totally read that as pining. And I'm going to, because it's Merchant, and I have nothing fun to do. (laughs) Also, I wrote down some quotes. Oh, that I had the title good enough to keep his name company, Solanio says of Antonio. Oh. And when Antonio's in prison, Solanio's the one there, like, it's gonna be alright, but probably not, but I'm here for you. Unlike that loser pretty boy. <laughs> yeah, unlike that fuckboy who's not even, like, in Venice. So my note was just, like, all caps, let Solanio love you, Antonio. Oh, that's adorable. Because I think he does. He's omnipresent. The dude doesn't get that many lines, there's not that much in-text evidence the way we see for these others, but he is always there for him. Oh, man, now I just want to see a production where they go for it. Yeah. Yeah, where he's just like, 
making guys at him like the entire play, I think you could do it. I think it would work. It would make it all so much sadder that Antonio is so fixated on this pretty little fuckboy instead of right. the totally class appropriate guy who's right there. Also, like whenever it comes in that one of his ships gets trashed, Solano is always the one wringing his hands. So I'm just a merchant standing in front of another merchant asking him <laughs> to love me. <laughs> That was beautiful, Liz. A misappropriated quote for every occasion. Hell yeah. So it's maybe it's a very large rowboat or a small OTP ship. Either way. No, you've convinced me. Okay, great. No one else has to believe me, but I was reading Merchant, so I needed something fun to do. Lots of romance stories have that devoted person who gets ignored for half the story, and then at the end, because other shit doesn't work out, they get pulled in. And it's not fair, but at least maybe they could be happy together. Fingers crossed. It's a better ending for Antonio than... And the actual text of the play gives him. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure what Antonio deserves because, again, hella racist. The worst. So much the worst. But if you want something nice to happen for him, then Solanio. There we go. Solanio doesn't have the sense to make better friends, so I guess he deserves what happiness he can get. He's probably as racist as the rest of the secondary characters get to be. Yeah. I mean, most of the racism gets allotted to our primary characters, which is... Yay. ...setting. Makes it easier to hate them all. Yes, which, as noted, we do. But that's probably a good segue into our rowboats, of which we have a small fleet, as usual, because there's a large cast of characters and you can kind of put whoever with whomever you want. Let's talk about the bullshit first before we get to, like, the couple good robots. Okay, so we're going to end on the one that we really love. Yes. Because there is one. You're welcome, guys. We found the bright spot. Liz is giving us this gift. We should appreciate her for us. But first, the bullshit. <sighs> We probably could have talked about it in canon pairings as well, but it's technically more of a rowboat even though it is canon. Lancelot the Clown has some feelings for Jessica, which are possibly the least offensive romantic pairing given to us in this play? It's weird because your sense of what is offensive gets so thrown off by this play. I, I still find it objectionable, but then you're right, like the contrast is... And he's less shitty to her than Lorenzo is. He's still anti-Semitic and racist, and and he impregnated a black serving woman. And then joked about it, like good fuckboy. So there's all that. But their banter feels more lighthearted than her supposed banter with Lorenzo, which just seems mean. Yeah. There's a scene together with the two of them where she's sorry that he's going to leave because he was the only thing that made her laugh. And he's like, I'm crying. I'm so sorry to go away from you. You're so pretty. But that's basically all there is to it. And then he like watches her run away with Lorenzo the shit. And then they get one more scene at Belmont, right? Yeah. Which is, I don't know, kind of weird and awkward. She's clearly not into him, and he's clearly into her. Yes. It's cute. It's not the worst, which most of the rest of this play is. There's a lot of the worst here. I don't ship it. I just find it cute. Like, I'm grasping at straws here, people. This is a terrible, terrible play. It's a merchant. There's not that much you can do. I'm not going to explode in rage at that one. We don't have to light this particular rowboat on fire. Honestly, you don't really have to light rowboats on fire much in the first place because they're little and they don't hurt that many people. You can't do much damage from a rowboat. can only row away. You can also see some Lancelot 
Lancelot Bassanio? Lancelot really admires Bassanio, and we all know Bassanio is gorgeous, so probably you could ship him with anyone in the play. I don't know why you would. Bassanio's looks are literally the only thing he has going for him. Yeah, that's why he has to get married while he's still young and pretty. Lancelot, obviously, he runs away to join Bassanio's service because, well, we can say that for Bassanio. Apparently, he has killer fashion sense because his livery is so nice looking. And he does give Lancelot a more heavily embroidered livery than the other folks who have joined up, so like, yay, he can be nice to the help. I can see it. Again, I'm not real invested in it. I don't particularly want good things for Bassanio. I want him to die of plague. He will. Someday. That's the ideal fic for this play. Plague comes, everyone dies. If you have other fic, you can send it to us. But if you have plague fic, definitely send it to us. Please, I want to see these fuckers in torment. I know that major character death is kind of a a no for most people, but I would be fine with it here. We'd throw a party. Deliberate understatement? We found the one where they all die! Yeah, I wish this play were a tragedy, I do. To modern audiences, I would argue it is. No, I just meant in the, like, everyone dead on stage at the end of the play. End of Lear would be ideal. But it couldn't be the end of Lear, because we'd have to care for it to be that devastating. No, I just want, like, Lear's body count. Oh, okay. Preferably with, like, Titus and Andronicus's level of gruesomeness. Someone needs to get their limbs chopped off. Yeah, and maybe eaten. Yes. That's what I want for this play. My vote is for Graziano! The worst in a play of the worst! So, good segue. So, Lorenzo and Graziano, or Loratiano. The two fuckboys go off and don't ruin anything. Yeah, they get to go be twats together, and it's fine. They have some banter early on in the play, which inspired me to think this. Particularly the line Lorenzo says, (laughs) Graziano never lets me speak. He's got other uses for that mouth, Lorenzo. He does. Obviously also in reference to the fact that Graziano is a chatty motherfucker, doesn't know when to shut up. Bassanio tells him, dude, when we go to Belmont, you gotta zip it. And Graziano's like, oh, totally fine. I'm gonna do it. Am I doing it right now? How about now? How about now? Less talking, please. Lorenzo and Graziano have some humorous quote-unquote, moments, but mostly I just think they can go be dicks together. And you can take that in whatever sense you want. It's The Merchant of Venice. Please take it in the gayest sense possible. I mean, ideally, it's shipping Shakespeare. You should know that by now. (laughs) What are you even doing here? Why? (laughs) You knew what this was. And if you didn't when you started, you do now. For sure. So that's the shittiest rowboat, but I kind of ship it because, sure, let's put shitty people together and see what happens. It's kind of the best rowboat in that sense. Get the shittiest people away from all the rest of the non- so shitty people. Put them in a literal rowboat and then just push them out to sea. Please. They won't last a week. They will definitely eat each other. And again, not in the sexy way. I mean, probably that first, but then eventually in the we're gonna die out here way. One can hope that the sexy form of eating would then lead to a capsizing of the rowboat and Lorenzo falling in and Graziano being like, fuck this, bye bitch. Sure, headcanon accepted. That's how it goes. You're welcome. If you're into douchebags fucking each other, this is the pairing for you. At least they're both young and reasonably pretty. Yeah, you get that much. And and if they're making out, neither of them is talking. Win for everybody! Graziano never lets me speak. Maybe you should turn that around on him, Lorenzo. Just saying. That would require Lorenzo to be smart. Oh, so sad. He's a few things, but smart is not one of them. The most you can say is pretty and probably well-dressed. On the off chance that Jessica doesn't mind getting naked with the people who made her dad convert, I can kind of see her hooking up with Portia and Nerissa. That's a hard if. She has some clear admiration for Portia. I think you pointed out that she might just want to be her, but, you know, sometimes wanting to be someone and wanting to do them, that overlaps. It might be the sort of thing that Jessica might need to do once to get out of her system, but 
but then I feel like she would be hardcore repulsed. She is clearly in the experimental adventure phase of her young adulthood, so it would totally make sense. What does she say about Portia? I mean, a lot of things, actually. The poor, rude world hath not her fellow. Well, damn. There we go. I can see it. And, you know, anything that involves Portia is probably going to involve Nerissa. So let Jessica get her freak on a little bit and then get the hell out of Belmont and away from all of these fucking people. We will come up with some better ships for her when we do our crossover episode because there are some people who need some justice and she is one of them. And some mercy. Way to bring it back. The two are inescapable in this Meshuggah play. <laughs> Did I mention I was Jewish? Real subtle. So I love loved your crack pairings. Both of mine involve the Duke, who we haven't really mentioned, but he fulfills the function that Dukes do in pretty much every Shakespearean play. They're the arbiters of justice and society and the law. They basically just stand there, spout off elaborate phrases, and don't really do anything. Basically useless. This particular Duke does seem invested in this case, because he's also an anti-Semite like everyone in Venice. Such an impartial judge. For realsies. But you could argue that his investment in the case could be because of of his attachment to Antonio, so that is one of my crack parents. Not a lot of textual support there, but I'm gonna go with it. The other one, which is actually my favorite, is the Duke and Balthazar, which is the pseudonym that Portia uses when she's a legal scholar, because at the end of all the legal shenanigans, the Duke totally invites him, bunny ears, to dinner, and Portia declines, but I really feel like the Duke is into it and would probably be the only person to be really disappointed to find out that she's secretly a lady. I love it. And why not? Balazar's a brilliant young lawyer. Like, go for that, Duke. Enjoy yourself. He says, I'm sorry that your leisure serves you not. And then he turns to Antonio and says, gratify this gentleman. Uh, Yeah, the Duke knows what's up with Antonio, for sure. (laughs) I feel like there's literally no one in Venice who doesn't know what's up with Antonio. He's not subtle about hiding it. Accurate. Even if there was anyone who didn't know, they were probably in that courtroom and they heard what Antonio and Bassanio said to each other. God, and saw them probably, like, mooning at each other. I'm always disappointed when productions don't go for a final desperate kiss. Come on, guys. Be brave. It's not even brave. It's 2018. Just do it. It's fucking text. It's not even subtext. It's there. In the text. Everybody knows it. But yeah, Duke and Balthazar in the Duke's head. It's totally winning situation. There for it. All right. You ready to talk some happy things? Let's do some good stuff. Oh, finally. We're building up to the favorite here, but Shylock has a friend named Tubal, who he sends to inquire about Jessica. Jessica's and Antonio's relative welfares. Tubal comes back in a slightly odd scene where he's just like, so Antonio's fucked and Jessica's doing awful things. And did I mention that Antonio is fucked? Also, your daughter did some things even worse than what I just told you. And Antonio is fucked. It kind of reads like he's egging Shylock on to become the villain that he will inevitably be. But at the same time, Tubal is also the only person in the whole play who treats Shylock like a human being and empathizes with his pain. Yeah, he's the only person rooting for Shylock in this situation. Considering what a massive anti-Semite Antonio is, I'm not surprised that, like, other Jewish characters are like, yeah, fuck this guy. It makes sense to me that he would be rooting for Antonio's failure and demise in addition to being Shylock's friend, which, thank God Shylock has a friend is my general feeling about this. Oof, seriously. Dude needs one. He's so alone. Talk about isolation. I mean, Shylock is the most isolated character in the play, despite being in the middle of the city. It's a whole world he can never touch. Yeah, he's just barred from it. Not welcome. Respectability politics don't work. They do not. So I think that Shylock and Tubal had a thing going on once. I think so. I don't think it's active anymore, but I think it was 
a thing once upon a time. Do you think it was before or after Leah is my question? I think it was before. Oh, that's nice. I think when they were young, that happened. And then I think Shylock fell in love with Leah, and that was clearly a very deeply meaningful thing for him. But I think he and Tubal stayed friends once they stopped being lovers. Oh, I love that they're friendly exes. Those are the best. Right? That's how it should be. In a better world, one that did not contain this play. That's about all I have to say about it. Just that it's like a moment of niceness in Shylock's shitty life that I think he deserves. Saw a little rowboat. Hopefully it has some nice kosher food on it. Everyone's got a blanket. They're happy. They deserve it. Because what a shit show. Just the simple fact of existing as a Jew in this play entitles you to some fucking happiness. Honestly. And now! Yay! I was trying to think about rowboats for this play, and then it just hit me out of nowhere. Obviously, the two suitors of Portia who try the caskets and fail and are forbidden by the laws of that test from ever marrying clearly hook up with each other and get around the test that way. Yes! The princes of Morocco and Aragon. Morocco-gon for the win! I don't always love the Pormentos, but that's an especially good one. So the way I see it, they're both departing, waiting for their ships or whatever. They're standing and talking on the docks, and they start commiserating. Maybe we should go to Venice and have a drink before we leave. And they're both staring down this life they've committed themselves to for this woman that doesn't even like them. And I hope they rag on Portia, like, a bunch. Please take that bitch to town. Ideally for the rest of their beautiful lives together, because they're like, well, you know, you're the only person that understands my situation. Plus, like, literally everyone else in the world is just like, oh, Portia, she's the best. And they're just like, um, no, fuck her. Yeah, that hag. Racist bitch. Aragon, I think, is the only person in the play that doesn't say anything racist. Seriously, Morocco doesn't say anything racist either. Yeah, it'd be sad if he said anything racist against himself, but that's not uncommon in Shakespeare. He basically says, don't hate me because I'm black. He's ready. He knows what the world is. Like, he's lived in it. He tries the casket and fails and is led away. And then fucking Portia is just like, all of his complexion choose me so. Uh, okay, my text notes that there's a double wordplay there because he failed the test, he's not worthy, and that's part of it. But come on, we know what she's really saying. Yeah, even though she insists to him that, oh, you know, I don't really care. She does, but she hates everyone who comes to take the test except for Bassanio because she's super shallow. And very horny. Also that. Nerissa should get on that. Really? Like, come on, you have one job. I bet you anything that you are better at oral than Bassanio. Yeah, that's just true. <laughs> <laughs> but Anyway, Moroccan, the only ship in this play that I wholeheartedly 100% without reservation support. I'm totally for it. If fic exists for that, please send it to me. I will read it and give it all the kudos. If it doesn't exist, we might have to write it ourselves. Don't do that to us. Have mercy. Don't do that to the world either. Okay, they're not the best at guessing riddles, but maybe they can get better at it together. They'll coach each other through the rest of their lives. Oh my god, they could have so many cute adventures where they like go around solving riddles together. Not to mention that a Moor and a Spaniard could finally solve the issues of that peninsula. Actually, yeah, that's a solid political alliance. No one's going to complain because they can never marry a woman. Each other. It's true love. They're not even in a scene together, but yes, I am wholeheartedly for this. It's destined by fairy tale logic. If Shakespeare gets to pair the spares, so do we. Our spare pairing is better than his in this play. I mean, that is the lowest bar you could possibly set, but yes. Suck it, Shakespeare. We beat you. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, I love you, but this is a garbage fire of a play. God, I hope he knew it too. Enjoy the niceness while you've got it, guys, because episode two is coming up. Yeah, we have serious ships to burn. Thank you for listening. Bye. 
This show is produced by us, Julia and Liz, as part of the Adjective Sphinx Network. The music we use is Almain One by John Bull and can be found at museopen.com. You can find links for more info in the show notes. Find us and our sibling shows on Twitter at Adjective Sphinx or email us at adjectivesphinx at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on iTunes and leave a review. Thanks for listening.